This is the third episode of Scissors and Scrubs. I'm Lara. I'm Nicole. We'll be your nurses tonight. Um, we have a, <laughs> we'll be taking care of you. Yeah. We have a um, pretty heavy subject matter tonight. Very heavy. Like Titanic tragic. Yeah, very tragic. Um, we're covering the Coconut Grove fire and the Station Nightclub fire, both local fires to New mm-hmm. England. Um, At the time we're f- recording this, it's like the anniversary of the Station fire. Yes. And uh, I know, like we, we said, it was going to be a lighthearted, kind of funny podcast, but I just feel like these are stories that need to be told. Yes. Um, the nursing part of it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And you just don't want to see something like this repeat. So maybe people out there, if we can get one person sitting near that exit, yep. one Look person listening for something else, listening, listening or looking for other things, you know, just... It, it needs to be told. Yeah. The heavy stories will give you a lighthearted story at the end of it, but the heavy stories. Right. And we're interested in not disasters. It's fascinating. It is, it's, um, it's really unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The stories are just unbelievable. Um, so we're interested in this kind of thing, so we're going to tell it. Right. And hopefully you find it interesting, too, because um, I can't get enough of this stuff. Yeah. Not that I love death and destruction, but it's just... The, the response, fact that, that, the fact that it, it happened... Yes, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yep. Right, so so I guess I'll go first. Um, I'm going to do the Coconut Grove Fire. I got my information from Wikipedia and from the Boston Fire Historical Society. Mm-hmm. So um, the Coconut Grove first opened in 1927, and it sat on 17 Piedmont Street in what was then called the Bay Village, which today would be Back Bay. Back Bay. Um, it was the partnership of two band leaders, Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard. Hmm. They came up with the idea, let's start this swanky club. It'll be great. But, of course, they needed money, so they have to get money from the mob. Never a good idea. Right. So they get money from the mob, and eventually um, the mob takes over the the business. Of course. So you're talking, this is now coming up on Prohibition, um, so the club becomes a speakeasy pretty quick. And the owner of the mob at that time is Charles King Solomon. He takes it over in 1931. And just a little side note to this, Mickey Alpert, who was one of the original owners, mm-hmm. even though at the time of the fire he didn't own the Coconut Grove, he is the band leader the night that the fire happens, so which is kind of there. coincidental. Yeah. He's still doing music and everything there. So in 1931, Charles King Solomon, who's a gangland boss and a bootlegger, I don't know why I just love that word, <laughs> bootlegger. Be a bootlegger. I need my next pet that, hmm. takes over the club and he now he makes it um, like a mob hangout mm-hmm. until 1933. Because in 1933, King Solomon's hanging out in the bathroom at the Cotton Club in Roxbury, and he gets gunned down in the bathroom. His mob's just One did. place I never want to be killed is in the bathroom. No. Um, so once he gets killed, ownership passes to Barney Wolanski. Barney Wolanski is this kind of like Elmer Fuddish looking guy, and he loves telling everybody how he's tied to the mob and mm. he's best friends with the mayor of Boston at the time, who was Maurice Tobin. Hmm, Tobin. Tobin Tobin Bridge. Tobin Bridge, maybe? There's some similarity there. So when Barney takes over, he wants to mainstream the club anyways to make it more popular, and he wants to make a lot more money. Mm -hmm. So things he does to make more money is he hires teenage busboys, which they are working for minimum wage, but really not legal to hire them. The bartenders and the waiters are all like local thugs. Um, he's really concerned that patrons are going to skip out on the bill. So he seals up all the exits, except for the front door. 
every fire exit is either locked and bolted shut, Oof. bricked over, or he's got drapes and things in front of them so you can't see them. Great. Right, because mm-hmm. that's so goddamn safe. Mm-hmm. So well, as long he, as they pay their bill. As long as they pay their bill. Mm-hmm. So when you pull up in front of the Coconut Grove and you look at it, it originally was a garage. And it kind of looks when you... There was a garage in Riviera built exactly the same way, which cracks me up. And so it's a one story when you look at it. Mm-hmm. The middle of the building is a revolving door. It's the only entrance that way is this revolving door. Mm-hmm. On either side of the revolving door are those these big windows, but they're the blocks that are glass bricks. Yeah. So they're wavy and stuff. My dentist yeah. office is really thick. Yeah, you can't see through them, and yeah. they're really, really thick. So it's a one-story building when you look at it. When you go in, it's two, like, it's one and a half kind of a story. I don't know. Okay. It's hard to explain it. So when you go in through that revolving door, you're looking at the coat closet. If you go to the left, mm-hmm. there's a stairway going down to the Melody Lounge. On your right is the entrance to the Caricature Lounge. The, it's like a bar. Okay. And it had a big middle bar. You sat completely around the bar. Mm-hmm. And it had characters. Like, kind of, I think, what the Brown Derby would have been in Hollywood is pictures of all the stars at the time. Right. You go straight, and you kind of did a zigzag to the right, and then you went into the ballroom. And it was this big ballroom. And at one end of the ballroom is where the band's playing. At the other end is the VIP Terrace. Huh? Who Who's the VIP of the night? Buck Jones. Oh, Buck Who the Jones. fuck is Buck Jones? No I don't know. But he was some big Western star. Huh. And he was on the tail end of his War Bond tour. And he's finishing up at the Coconut Grove this okay. time. It's decorated to look like a tropical paradise. In Boston. In Boston. Yes. You're in Hawaii, in Boston. Mm-hmm. So the walls are covered in bamboo, rattan, and leatherette, which I'm not really sure what leatherette is, but it sounds highly flammable. Leather curtains? Maybe. So it's got leatherette. The beams are covered to make look like palm trees. The lights are in coconuts. Like there's real coconuts, and you have a light bulb bulb inside the coconut. The ceiling has blue draperies to make it look like the sky. In the summertime, the the ceiling would open up so you could dance under the stars. The Melody Lounge, I think, had more of the drapery underneath because it's in the basement. Right. So I think if they decorated with match, matchsticks, it might have been less flammable. You couldn't have found more flammable. I don't stuff. think so. No. I mean, maybe we could have put some hay in there and some. It was Thanksgiving time, so maybe some cornucopias to really right just let make it, it spark a little quicker. Yeah. So um, it it it's as you can imagine, it's looking great these days. Mm-hmm. So the doors are bolted shut. Everything's covered. There you go. Um, I'm sorry, but I lost my place. I can look for a second. Okay. So the cloths are, at the time they were hung, they were treated with ammonia sulfate, which is a flame retardant. But there's no documentation that these were ever treated after. So these drapes, they're like the hanging covering doorways, the hanging covering curtains, um, covering windows. That's where they are. Okay. Then you have the AC unit, which um, had been serviced, but... Because it's 1942, the military is stealing all the Freon, which I'm doing all this research mm-hmm. on Valentine's Day. All right. So romantic. I go out to dinner with my husband. Mm-hmm. What am I going to talk about? I want to talk about the Coconut Grove. Right. Because that's the girl I am. Mm-hmm. He could give a shit. Yeah. But I'm telling my story and I get to the part where like, well, you know, they replaced the AC units. They took all the Freon and the mm-hmm. military is like, well, what did the military do with the Freon? I don't know. I don't care. And he's like, well, your, your listeners are going to want to know. I'm like, no, I don't think they're going to give a shit. <laughs> he's like, well, you better tell them what. So for my husband uh-huh. and anybody who really wants to know, 
the military took all the Freon as a coolant for the warplanes and for the big, huge guns that they oh. were using at the time. So they're using it as coolant on the weaponry at the time. Makes okay, sense. Brian? There you go. So they took the Freon and they replaced it with a highly flammable methyl chloride. So it's like a perfect storm. These draperies mm -hmm. is an AC unit full of methyl chloride, which is highly flammable mm -hmm. and highly toxic. The Coconut Grove is built to hold uh, 460 people. Okay. That's max occupancy. So now we fast forward to Saturday, November 28th, 1942. Mm -hmm. That day was a big day in Boston. They were having a huge game, Holy Cross versus BC at Fenway Park. Huge. Huge. Mm -hmm. So everybody from BC is there. Everybody from Holy Cross is there. BC is supposed to win. They are heavily favored. It's in the bag. BC is going to win. BC is so convinced they're going to win, they plan their victory party at the Coconut Grove. Mm -hmm. Mr. Tobin's supposed to be at the Coconut Grove to celebrate as well. Yeah. But whenever you get that cocky, you mm -hmm. fucking lose. Yeah. You don't ever plan a party before you win. You don't you plan win. a party before you win. Yeah. So they lose. Mm -hmm. Now, instead of all the BC people, they cancel their, their party. All of the Holy Cross people are going to go to the Coconut Grove. Because it's the place to be in Boston at the time. I mean, it has a retractable roof. It has a roof. It would be the place to be now. Oh, it gets better because I believe at some point there's a revolving stage Ooh. at the Coconut Grove. Well, I mean, you are a tropical paradise in fucking November in Boston. Okay. That's awesome. So it was the place to be. So when Saturday night rolls around at the Coconut Grove, mm -hmm. you have a thousand fans, wartime servicemen and their sweethearts, and locals crammed into the Co Coconut Grove. 460 people, there's a 1,000 this Jesus. Saturday night. So who's not there? Barney. No. Barney Wolanski. He's sit, kicking his heels up at the MGH because he's had a heart attack. Oh. So he's hanging out the night of the fire. And he really is the reason this all happens. Yeah. So around 10.15, according to reports, down in the Melody Lounge, which is in the basement, 17-year-old mm -hmm. singer Goody Goodell is on her revolving stage oh, there it is. playing piano and singing. And in one of the corners of the Melody Lounge is a serviceman who wants to get a little cozy with his chickie. Mm -hmm. So he unscrews one of the light bulbs in the coconuts. Okay. And the busboy sees this. The bartender's like, go over and screw that back up. You can't, we can't have this. Mm -hmm. So poor little Stanley, I'm going to say his name wrong, I know, but Tomachevsky. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going with. That sounds good. Stanley Tomachevsky goes over it, lights a match, because mm -hmm. he can't see what's in the coconuts. So he finds the coconut that isn't working, screws the light bulb back in, puts the match on the ground, stomps it out. Within seconds, patrons are like, the palm tree ignites. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. They see this, and the waiters run over with... It, all I can think of is the Three Stooges, those seltzer bottles yeah, that are like... the big, huge. Yeah, they hold yeah. like 40 gallons of yeah. water. Psst. Yeah. So they're over there, and they're trying to put the tree out with the seltzer bottles. Mm -hmm. But it's catching too quick. So they literally pull the tree down off the, the uh, main beam. But mm -hmm. when they do this, it takes some of the drapery down, and a corner of the false ceiling opens up, yeah. which now the fire shoots into the false oh, ceiling, God. and it immediately ignites the entire roof of the false ceiling, including all the fabric yeah. of this. Yeah. The trees are starting to go up, boom. And I mean, it's like quick. Instantaneous. Right. So the patrons are getting showered down now. Sparks <sighs> and burning fabric are falling on them. And let alone the methyl chloride, which is toxic, right. is igniting as well. So 
it, it goes up and now the fire is looking for oxygen. Mm-hmm. And patrons obviously are starting like, oh my God, we got to get out of here. They start going up the stairs. Well, as they go up the stairs, the fire decides to go up to the stairs too. And it incinerates everybody oh, on the Jesus. stairs on the way up. So as it gets into the hallway at the top of the stairs, it explodes. And it shoots into the character lounge, and it literally travels down the hallway into the ballroom. And incinerates all the people in the hallway on the way in. It's traveling faster than the people can move. Gets into the hall, uh, into the main lounge, and ignites the entire lounge. Within five minutes, the entire coconut grove is on fire. Mm. All right, so... At the top of the stairs of the Melody Lounge had been a fire exit mm-hmm. with a panic bar on it, bolted shut. Had that door been open, like hundreds would have lived. Right. Bolted shut. So everybody's going the way they know how to come in. They go to the revolving door, mm-hmm. the only door in or out. As soon as people start pushing on the door, it jams. Mm-hmm. As soon as it jams, bodies start piling Just up in front of the door. Yep. Coincidentally, at 10.15... Down the street, the Boston Fire Department receives an alarm at box 1514, which is about three blocks from the Coconut Grove. Mm-hmm. They get there. They find a car on fire. They put it out. They kind of, like, look, and they're like, oh, shit, there's fire coming out of the Coconut Grove. Yeah. So they fly down to the Coconut Grove. So literally within a minute, the fire department's there. Right. But they can't. All these cars are in front of the co- Coconut Grove. They can't mm-hmm. even get the fire apparatus to the front of the Coconut Jeez. Grove. So at 1020... Another alarm is sent from the Boston Fire Department from Box 1521. The chief at this point's like, we're not even doing two alarm. We're going right to three alarm. And by mm-hmm. 11.02, it's a five alarm fire. Um, the So now as the fire's going, the temperature outside's dropping. Mm-hmm. So whatever fire trucks are showing up, everything's freezing to the ground. And because the door is jammed, the fire department standing at the door, and mm-hmm. it's this little tiny plate glass, and they're watching people burn to death in front of them, and they can't do anything. Oh. Now, because of those thick black, um, those glass blocks, they can't get the pickaxe through the windows. Because they're so thick. Because they're so thick. So they can't even smash the windows to let people come out that way. Um, so And those poor people are seeing, like, they're seeing there's the help, help, and they not, can't get nope, the... Nope, nope, nope. And at one point, they break the glass in the revolving door, mm-hmm. And the fire shoots out the door, incinerates everybody in the door. Oh, my God. Immediately. Because it's just looking for oxygen right. at this point. And wherever a window opens, it comes up behind him. One of the survivors, I was watching one of the shows on, one of the survivors says he's upstairs. He's um, a tap dancer in the show. Mm-hmm. I just think that's adorable. <laughs> he was a tap dancer in the show. And he said he can hear all this commotion downstairs. Mm-hmm. He said, and I open the door. This guy comes flying through my dressing room. Now, their dressing room's up on, like, the roof, which obviously patrons aren't going to know this. Right. He comes flying up. I don't know how he knew how to get up there. And he smashes through the plate glass, plate glass window behind him. Wow. And the fire comes right out behind oh, him, he said. So he's like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. He gets the chorus girls out to the roof they go. And he said, we found a ladder, but the ladder doesn't reach the ground. He said, so he, himself and another guy holding the ladder and the chorus girls going down it and jumping mm-hmm. to the ground. And he's thinking, who the hell's going to hold that for us? Right. He said, but eventually the fire department showed up and they got out. Like the only people really to get out were staff. They knew where where the exits were. Nobody else does. They know where the exits are. Some people are even hiding in meat lockers in the freezers, which I think is really good. I mean, there was nowhere else to go. Yeah, Yeah. I'll take my chances. So nearby sailors, soldiers, local people, they're flying out of wherever they're at to come and help these people who are trapped inside. Um, 
So if any doors were unlocked, they opened in. Mm. So now people are piling up in front of them. You, you're not you going to open that in. door. Mm. You're not going to open that door. So the poor people, like, it, they said if these doors had been open, like 300 lives could have been spared mm. from the coconut grove. But it just was, it was an accident waiting to happen, yeah. unfortunately. So early on, the lights go out. There's mm. no, um, it's pitch black in there. There's no emergency lighting. There's no lighting. Some survivors were like, we literally were just feeling the wall to see if there was any opening in these walls. One guy and his wife, he's like, I found a window, smashed the window, threw my wife out of it. I crawled out. So, like I said, anybody who survived was usually staff. Mm-hmm. You know, they got out. Um, and because now the temperature's so cold outside and the people inside are breathing such hot, toxic yeah. air... They come outside, the cold air hits their trachea and their esophagus, and they're dropping. They're oh dropping God. like flies. One, one firefighter's like, they would just drop like stones as soon as they would come out of the door. He's oh, like, geez. it's horrifying. Um, the firefighters, they're trying to reach through the door to pull people out, mm-hmm. and they're pulling limbs. They're just pulling body parts right up. Burnt. Because like, even if they're alive, it, it, they're so hot, it just they're just pulling them off. It, I mean, I can't even imagine no. what these poor guys had to look and what they had to see. No. So the bodies coming out, living and dead, they're being hosed down with ice water. Like the, mm-hmm. the fire department's just hosing everybody coming out because they're, they're on fire when mm-hmm. they're coming out of the building. And there's so many victims, the ambulances were overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So they're commandeering taxi cabs, um, newspaper trucks, regular cars, mm-hmm. anything. And they're transporting them out to different hospitals. And the fire is extinguished within a matter of minutes. They're able to control the fire. Mm-hmm. But they can't get in because there's so many bodies at every exit. They can't get in. So it's taking, it's harder to get in than was to get out. Oh and so it, they don't even know how bad it is right. until they're able to remove the bodies from the doorways to get into the building. Um, most of the victims are transport. I mean, every Boston hospital took them, but the majority of victims go to Boston City Hospital and to Mass General. MGH took 114 burn and smoke inhalation um, victims. Boston City took 300. Wow. It's quoted at one point that Boston City was getting a victim every 11 seconds. So could you even imagine? Like, okay, here's another one. Here's, I mean, you can't even 300 yeah. every 11 seconds. The blessing of the time is that because it's 1942, all the hospitals in the Eastern Seaboard are preparing for war. Mm-hmm. Their Pearl Harbor just happened, you know, like a little over, a little under a year ago. And they think they're going to get the Blitzkrieg hitting them. Mm-hmm. So they had, a week before this happens, the hospitals had done a disaster drill, and MGH had a stock supply of emergency equipment. They have a stock supply of plasma. Boston City has a stock supply of emergency equipment. They have a stock supply of plasma. And it's happening at a change of shift. So it's about like 10.30, maybe right. these people are starting to come in. You have the 3 to 11 shift coming off and the 11 to 7 shift coming on. So, so like you double. have a double stock right. of nurses coming on. And your volunteers flying in just because they want to help. Like, right. it really does bring out... Mm-hmm. An, I remember at the station fire, you couldn't get into the um, blood bank because so many so people, people were donating. Yeah. So most victims die en route. Um, when they did get to the hospital, at this time, there's no form of triage. So they're working on victims who either were dead or dying, mm-hmm. and they wasted precious time on people who could have maybe been helped. Um, by Sunday morning... Only 132 out of the 300 at Boston City were still alive, and mm-hmm. 75 of the 114 at MGH are still alive. And of the total 444 burn victims, only 130 survived. Jesus. It's like awful. That's awful. So back at the Grove, 
Sunday morning, a temporary morgue is set up down at a local garage. And some of these presumed dead victims are dropped off, and they're not dead. No. And they wind up, people figuring out they're alive and sending them to the hospital. And some of them did survive the fire later on. Um, in total, 492 people died in the Coconut Grove fire. It's unbelievable. Right. When you consider the capacity was 460. Right. So, obviously, a massive fire investigation follows. Um, and it's found that just 10 days before the fire, Boston Fire is in there. Cleared it. They passed all inspections. Wow. Probably because Barney had some friends. Right. Um, and when they look into it, for years, they had had no licenses for food handlers, no liquor license. Just nothing. Nothing. They, they had had work done, um, and the remodeling's done by uncontracted, unlicensed contractors. So they're just handing envelopes right. of cash. And the busboy, Stanley, he's underage. He shouldn't have even been working. Mm-hmm. And this isn't his fault at all, no. but he shouldn't have even been working. So this poor kid, Stanley Tomachevsky, um, like, he was like the football star, like, great kid, mm-hmm. and the paper puts out, he starts the fire. Oh, now, at this point, he has to get put under police protection because the t- entire city of Boston wants to kill him. Oh, like, they're God. like, you, you know, you killed 500 people. Right. Um, later, it's found out he had nothing to do with it. It was probably like he screws this light bulb in and it threw off the terrible electrical right. system they had right. and set the fire up. But he stays in Boston, grows up in Boston, and he's quoted as saying that every day he would pray for both survivors and the victims because it was he just could never get over what had happened. Right. He knew it wasn't his fault, but it's but just... But you knew that one action you right, were set told off, to do. Right, set yeah. off something. Barney. Oh, Barney, 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 Barney. Imagine sitting in that hospital with a heart attack. Oh, where are these people? Oh, exactly, and knowing what happened. Yeah. So Barney gets convicted of 19 counts of manslaughter. They just randomly picked 19 victims. I don't know why they did it this way, but 19 counts of manslaughter. He gets 12 to 15 years. He serves four before, guess who pardons him? Who's now governor? Yes. Wicked smile. The governor pardons him. Governor Tobin, um, who narrowly missed indictment himself. I don't know what they were going to get him on, but he not only misses indictment, he now becomes governor. So in 1946, full of cancer, Barney's released from Norfolk Prison, and he tells reporters at that time he wished he had died in the fire that night. Mm -hmm. And nine weeks weeks later, he is dead of cancer. So the good that came out of it for fire safety is the revolving doors now have to be collapsible. Mm -hmm. So if you push on them, they collapse. And on either side of a revolving door, you have to have two outward pushing doors. And the doors have to be clearly marked. They have to be unlocked from within. Every fire exit has to be free from blockage by screens, drapes, or furniture. You can't cover any emergency exits anymore. Good idea. You have to have emergency lighting that's separate on its own system. Mm-hmm. You have to have light-up exit signs that don't mm-hmm. go out in a fire. Mm-hmm. You have to have sprinkler systems. Mm-hmm. All of this came out from the Coconut Grove. In medicine, this is the first time you see the use of the newfangled blood bank. Mm. It was established at Mass General in... I'm not saying Mass General had the first blood bank, but Mass General's first blood bank was established in April of 1942 and at the time was stocked with 200 units of dried plasma for the war. Boston City had 500 units stored uh, of plasma to be used, and they used all of that on all of the Coconut Grove um, victims, both hospitals. It was so much plasma, it was more than they used in Pearl Harbor for those victims, which is crazy. Yeah. So it's the first time you're going to see fluid therapy. They're realizing the fluid changes going on mm-hmm. with burn patients, and they're resuscitating them with fluids. 
uh, burn care, where you're using soft gauzes covered in petroleum jelly and boric acid. Mm -hmm. Mass General took a whole floor and devoted it strictly to the burn victims so that they could um, have sterile technique, no infection coming in and out. Nice. They were able to isolate these patients because when you burn, infection. that's the f number one thing. You've, you've burned off your number one defense, which right. is the skin. Um, it's the first time you can see antibiotics used on the public. The military had the antibiotics, but this is the first time antibiotics are used on wow. the Americans. So 13 survivors get their first time penicillin, wow. which now is like nothing. Yeah. Um, and it's the first time you're going to see a paper written on PTSD for the victims and for the firefighters because mm -hmm. I just can't imagine what no. it must have been like to watch that. No. So in April of 1943, the last survivor of the fire is released from Mass General. Um, the hospitals did not charge any of the patients for the treatment. That's amazing. Which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something. Yeah. The Red Cross reimbursed the hospitals the cost, wow. but none of these patients were charged. The clubs torn down in 1944, and it's now the site of the Riviera Hotel. Okay. There's a lot of side stories mm -hmm. to the Coconut Grove of, you know, one patient marrying their nurse. There was a famous person there that night. I can't, Eddie Fleming, I think his name was. Survives a coconut grow fire, dies in a fiery car crash. Oh my like, God. there's yeah. all these stories, but this podcast could be four hours oh, yeah. if we it's tell all the insane. stories that I want yeah. to tell about it. So, um, this is a story that I used to hear my aunts talk about mm -hmm. the coconut grove all the time, who were old enough at the time to have been at the coconut right. grove. They were wartime ladies, yeah. but they're all passed away now, and I never got the chance to ask them about it. Yeah. So, um, that's my story of the coconut grove. Very good. Mm -hmm. Very, very well very done. Much. I'm going to go with the. Station nightclub oh, fire. Tough one. That's it, a tough it's one. tough. They're both, they're awful. Yeah. And they're both very similar. Yes. In a lot of ways. Um, the, I almost said Coconut Grove. The Station nightclub fire um, occurred on Thursday, February 20th, 2003. Um, the Station nightclub was in West Warwick, Rhode Island. That night, the rock band Great White. Oh, Great White. Yep. Um, was performing a show there. Um, their set was about to start just about 11 o'clock. Um, they started with their song Desert Moon. Apparently it was a 1991 Billboard mainstream rock hit. Never heard of it. Me neither. Never once. Um, but in the video for the song, the band is surrounded by fire. So let's recreate that in a tiny so, little nightclub. you know, that's yeah. a good idea. Yep. So the tour manager, 26-year-old Daniel Bichelle, set off three gerbs on the stage. Gerbs are pyrotechnics. They're like cylindrical pyrotechnics and they release a spray of sparks 15 feet high for 15 seconds um the two gerbs in a little tiny nightclub in a little tiny nightclub yeah. um the two gerbs on the sides ignited the acoustic foam that was surrounding the entire stage oh. ceilings walls the whole stage was surrounded by this acoustic foam for you know noise control um and initially people thought it was part of the act so no one really moved because these were going off, and they go off for 15 seconds. So they catch the foam, but the sparks are still flying. I watched the video, and you can't see it you caught can't see until it. those go down. Right, and it's already underway, yeah. you know, like as... It's already it, engulfed. Right, and no one's noticing because these things are shooting up. Right. Um, 20 seconds after the pyrotechnic stopped, the lead singer um, of Great White, Jack Russell is his name, calmly walked to the microphone and said, Wow, that's not good. That's how, like, no one had a clue. And I'm pretty sure the entire stage was engulfed at that point. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, in less than a minute, the whole stage was yeah. engulfed. 
He said that 20 seconds after and in less than a minute, the entire stage was engulfed. Um, the, a flashover occurred in less than one minute as well. Um, and a flashover causes all combustible materials in the area to, to burn, to ignite and burn. You know, alcohol, mm-hmm. anything combustible, which you're in a bar, everybody has yeah. a drink. Humans are combustible. So the, drunk, the drinks are combustible. Everything's. Oh my Every, God. It's a flashover, oh so God. everything burns. Humans are combustible. So people were just catching on fire. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so there's a thick oh black God. smoke. It engulfs the entire club within minutes. Um, and that's from the foam insulation. When foam, this, this foam insulation that they had burns, it releases carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. If Ooh. you inhale this two to three times, they say, two to three times, so two to three breaths, mm-hmm. it causes rapid loss of, of consciousness and then death by suffocation. Which, if I see the stage on fire, I'm breathing you're like breathing I'm heavy. You're screaming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, I'd be dead. You're taking in deep breaths yeah. of this stuff. Yep. Um, the t- total capacity for the club that night was supposed to be 404 people. There was 462 people there that night. It was a really small wooden mm-hmm. standalone structure. It used to be a restaurant. It wasn't big. You know, it, yeah. they shouldn't have had 462 is a lot in pyrotech marks is way too much. Um, there was four points of exit. One exit was to the side of the stage. Some people did go to that exit to get out once they noticed the flames, but there was a bouncer standing there because that was the exit door for the band. And he turned them away. Of course he did. Band only. And would did not let not people like Did you see the I flames and the smoke? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't smoky when those people got there. I'm just, I think the people who went to that door while he was still standing there, because oh. the band is gone in less than a minute. So yeah. I'm thinking they got there in the first 20 seconds because they were the people standing right. right there. The ceiling in the club was a little weird. So I don't know if it was under like a, where the stage was, it like open, yeah. the ceiling went higher. So I don't know if where he was standing, you know, there was like a lower ceiling. So, so he, he might not have been able to see it, but... I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hope Imagine that's true. Imagine how many people could have lived. It, I mean, hundreds. Yeah. I mean, I mean, only it's it's insane. A lot of people. A lot of people who survived said we went to that side exit and they wouldn't let us out. Oh God, that's um, a lawsuit. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that was for the band only. The guitar. The band went out. You know. I think once the singer said, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's not good," they left. Um. The guitarist went out with the band, but he did die in the fire. They believe he went back in to get his guitar, not, not thinking this is going to burn in right. a matter of minutes. Right. Um, or just even the toxic smoke. Right. Probably which made him pass out, yeah. and then he died in there. Um, the DJ that was emceeing that night was DJ Mike the Doctor Gonzalez. He died. They said People said that they saw him on the stage trying to get his equipment off before he left and probably passed out from yeah. the toxic fumes. Um, so everyone now is trying to get out through the main entrance because that's the only right. door they know to get out because, you know, the people who did go to the side entrance were turned around. So everyone's going towards that one entrance. And you had to go, you left the main room into a narrow hallway to get to the door. So you have 450 funneled. people funneled into a little hallway. Um, immediately, within a minute, the doorway is jammed of people. Oh and they have fallen and they're laying down. They're stacking up. Stacked up in the doorway. There's a video that someone shot from inside. They have their camcorder. And they were one of the first people out. Like, he got out right away, this person. And he turns around, and he still has his camcorder on. And 
it's it's not a minute. It, a minute did not go by, and the bodies were stuck in the doorway, and you can just see these people re- panicking. And they're laying there. They can't move. They cannot move an arm, nothing, nothing. stuck in this doorway. And then everybody behind them God. is just stuck. It's awful. Um, some did escape. There was big atrium windows in the bar area, but they had pushed the pool tables up against them to make room. Oh, my God. So you couldn't, like, walk to the... Like, you had to find the... Which pool is table. black in there, so yeah. you can't see anything. You had to find the pool table, get around it, get on it, get to the atrium windows, and then they couldn't knock them out, so they were just banging on them. So once but people got out, they did crack a couple windows. A few people came out of them. Not a lot, because by that time, they probably... They're jammed stamp- in the way. Stampeded or toxic smoke. Toxic smoke. You can only pray the smoke got them Knocks before them the fire out. did. I know. Um, within five and a half minutes, the structure is fully engulfed. The just so happens, though, there was a camera man there that night. So the fire is caught, caught from ignition on film. He was a um, cameraman for a Providence TV station. He was there that night for a planned piece on nightclub safety. It was being reported by Jeffrey Dardarian, who was a news reporter for a Providence station and um, pot owner of the club. They were doing this report because three nights earlier, there was a stampede at the E2 nightclub in Chicago, and 21 people died. So he's thinking, okay, I'm going to... Stampede. Awful. I'm going to do a report, you know, in my club. How safe my club is. They're over capacity. You know, there's there's pyrotechnics. Hold my beer. I'm going to kill 100. Yeah, not good. So toxic smoke, heat, and the human crush at the exit killed 100 people and injured 230. Only 132 people escaped without injury. It was the fourth, fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history and the second deadliest in New England, second only to the Coconut Grove fire. Um, in June 2003, the Station Fire Memorial Foundation was formed. Um, they wanted to build and man- maintain a memorial. Ray Villanova owned the site of the Station Club. And he donated that to the fund in in September 2012. And construction began in April of 2016, and a dedication ceremony was held on May 21st, 2017. Um, There was obviously an investigation after this fire. Tons of finger pointing. The band was saying, oh, no, they told us we could have pyrotechnics in this club. And the club owners were saying, oh, no, there's no way we told them that. Um, you know, went back and forth. So a National Institute of Standards and Technology investigation showed that if there was a fire sprinkler system in the club, it would have contained the fire long enough to give everyone in there enough time to get out safely. So why wasn't there? So Isn't that like a standard? It is. But the station didn't have the sprinklers because the age of the building, it was built before a certain year, like 1946 or something. And the size of it, they... it was, People were led to believe that it was exempt from the law to have the sprinklers because it has to be a certain size. Nobody should be exempt. Be, no one should, but it has to be a certain size mm-hmm. and it has to be a newer build to have to have them. So you can be exempt from them. Right. But because it was a restaurant first and changed to a nightclub, that exemption went away. So they were supposed to have them. They were supposed to have them. But the West Warwick fire inspectors never took note of the change of business. So, so they, they never had, required it. They never made them have it. Um, if it was there, all of the people would have gotten out. On December 9th, 2003, Jeffrey and Michael Dardarian, the owners of the club, and Daniel Bichel, the tour manager, were charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Oh. They charged them twice for everybody that died. 
They got them on two separate. Yeah, you know they should charges. Daniel pleaded guilty against his lawyer's advice. He was extremely remorseful. The poor kid felt awful about it. Um, He was sentenced to serve four years with 11 years suspended. So they gave him 15 years. He only had to serve four. Um, When he came up for parole, the parole board was shocked because they were receiving letters from the victim's families asking for leniency for him and to let him be paroled because he was remorseful. He was the only one that admitted... Took the blame. He took the blame. Right. He was he a said, scapegoat. I did this. I didn't do this to hurt anybody, but yes, I set off the pyrotechnics. That you know, caused the fire. That yeah. caused the fire. Um, the families, like I said, they felt really, they felt bad for him. They felt like he had served enough time. He was, he should be Oh, and out. he's going to forever beat himself up over this. Oh, that the judge said to him, the worst sentence I can give you is the one you've already given yourself. And he actually hand wrote letters to all 100 Oh. Of the victims' families, um, so he was paroled on March nineteenth, two thousand eight. Jeffrey and Michael Dadarian originally were going to plead not guilty, but on September twenty first, two thousand six, they changed their plea to no contest to avoid a trial. Unbelievable. Yeah, Michael got sentenced the same sentence as the tour manager did. He got fifteen years, but eleven suspended, with only four to serve. Um, I wonder if that's just the max you could give him. I don't I don't think you have to suspend it, though. No, he should have served. You know what I mean? I totally agree. And yeah. the families and victims agreed with that. They said he should be getting more than this, this tour manager. The tour manager admitted what he did. You know, he knew, no, he feels bad about it. This guy's never said a word. Like, right. you know, he, he deserves to have more. Um, and Jeffrey just got a suspended sentence of 10 years but it was all suspended he got three years of probation and 500 hours of community service and the difference in the sentencing was um michael actually had more to do with putting in place the foam where jeffrey didn't he was kind of more like a silent partner yeah he's just giving money yeah um michael was paroled in june 2009 for um good behavior um, as of September 2008, $115 million in settlement agreements had been reached by various defendants. Yeah, you know, like... Should be more. Yeah, the foam companies, yeah. the speaker companies, the city, the state of Rhode Island, like all these people right. that were had to pay. Um, many violations obviously caused this disaster. Within weeks of the fire, there was an emergency meeting of the National Fire Protection Association. Association. Um, new laws were formed... They require automatic fire, fire sprinklers in all nightclubs with 100 or more occupants, plus additional crowd manager personnel. You know, people who work there to say, this is the exit, Why come out. Why wasn't there, like, a fire marshal? Now, I used to do dance recitals, yeah. and if we had a smoke machine, the fire marshal had to be there. If they're going to shoot pyrotechnics off, why Because I don't they... think anybody told the city there was going to be pyrotechnics. Right. I think... Yeah. Yeah. And it's all... I mean, you just think there would be a detail there, maybe... He would have called it in right away. Or policemen, usually someone at a. So this is what this law is now requiring that you have to have crowd management personnel there. Um, Also, additional exit requirements for new nightclub um, occupancies were put in place. So I got all that off of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Um, There was so many, there's so much more to it. You can't even go over it all. But I did watch a web series that I just want to talk about real quick just two episodes of it because it's the station web series on youtube 
in this seven of them, I believe, seven episodes, and they have victims on telling their stories about it, and then they have um, a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, and it just shows like how they were affected. what they did mm-hmm. for it. Um, the first episode I'm going to talk about it was episode one. The woman's name is Gina Russo. She went to the show that night with her boyfriend Freddie. She said when she got there, it was like 20 minutes before Great White went on. She said they were in there shoulder to shoulder, body to body. She said, and she had been there a few times before that. She said it was always like that, always jam-packed, always, you know, you couldn't move. She said once the pyrotechnic started, she said, Fred said, something's wrong. This isn't right. This shouldn't look like this. And they immediately went to that side exit. Oh. And Freddie said to the bouncer, like, you got to let us out. There's a fire. And he said, nope, for band only, would not let them out. I don't think I would have moved from that exit I don't, until he did. <laughs> I think you must have been just like, okay, I got to get out. Yeah. Like, I just, yeah. if you're not letting me out, I have to yeah. find another exit. I'm assuming is, you know, you're, you right. just know there's yeah, a fire. You don't know what you do in a situation like right. that. You just don't. Um, so he refused them. So Freddie turns them around, starts towards the main entrance. But now all these people are noticing that something's wrong. So they're all moving towards the front, ent- uh, the front entrance. So she said he felt, she felt Fred put her his hand on her back. He shoved her like as hard as he could and just screamed at her, go. And she turned around to look at him. She never saw him. He was not, he wasn't there anymore. I don't know if he fell or right. whatever. She couldn't see him. All she saw was people behind her with their heads on fire. Oh my God. He pushed her so hard she got to the entrance. I can't even that, imagine seeing that. No, I, I, I don't. I, you that's just, just panic. Like a, that's I think horrific. I, it's yeah. like hell. You are looking at hell. Yep. Yeah. Um, but he pushed her so hard that he propelled her right to the door. But there's already a wall of people there now. So she's stuck at the door. She said, I knew I was at the entrance. Every breath she took was getting hotter and hotter. Her lungs oh. felt like they were on fire. She said it was getting hotter to breathe. And then she passed out. She doesn't remember anything else after being stuck there. Um, so Rhode Island hospitals were very quickly inundated with all the patients. Because they're not very big anyway. No, and it's a small state. There's only so many. Um, so the more critical patients were sent up to Boston. Dr. Robert Sheridan is a burn surgeon at Mass General. He accepted many of the victims. You know, they called him. He coordinated. He fills the burn ICU with victims. Then he calls the surgical ICUs, the medical ICUs, the cardiac ICUs. Who can you take? How many can you take? Fills all their beds that they have available with these patients. And then he thinks the Shriners Children's Hospital is across, literally across the street from Mass General. They're a burn hospital for children's. Run by, run by the Aleppo Shriners. Oh, the Shriners. Um, they give free care. If I donate ever, yeah, I donate to the Shriners mm-hmm. because they give free care, burn care, free plastic surgery yep. until you're 18. Right. For any they don't people ask for from other anything. countries, yep. come. They take anybody. Yep. I mean, you could, them and St. Jude's, they will take anybody and they will give you free care. Right. Those are the people to donate to. Right. It's an excellent, yeah. excellent place. So they look funny in their hats, but they're they do doing a lot of good work. Yeah. So he calls Shriners. You know, there's this emergency. This is what's happening. We have over 200 victims. Like, you know, we need beds. Are you able or willing to take adult patients? And they said, absolutely. And as far as Dr. Sheridan knows, those are the first adult admissions ever Ever. at Shriners. Wow. Um, Then Dr. Sheridan goes on to explain there's really three main reasons burn patients die. One is, um, the first is burn shock. Patients, obviously, they lose a ton of fluid through their wounds. Mm-hmm. And like you said, from the Coconut Grove fire, they learned fluid management, but you still, you have to work. Well, and they're coming from Rhode Island. It's an hour away. Right. So they're, by the time they get to Boston. And they've been laying in the club yeah, trying. You can't, you can't med flight that many They people. couldn't get them out immediately either. Right. So it was took right. a long time. So it's been time. a while. Yeah. So the, um, so in burn shock, 
you lose this fluid, your blood pressure drops, it causes fluid imbalances, which leads, can lead to cardiac arrest and death. The second way, main way they die is through infection. They obviously have large open wounds. Your skin is mm-hmm. gone. It's your first line of um, protection against infection, like you said. Um, the wounds contain dead skin, fat, mm-hmm. muscle. Like if you have dead tissue, it it's leads to infection. It's a breeding ground for infection. So yeah. um, that's another way. And the third is respiratory failure. Obviously, the, the, you're having smoke inhalation mm-hmm. and these chemicals. And then the lining of the lungs start to slough from oh, being burned. I hate that word. Um, I know. And then they, it causes the inability to exchange gases, decreases your oxygen, and you suffocate. Um, so Gina was taken to Shriners Hospital. She was one of the adult patients there. She was intubated in a, in a medically induced coma. Her nurse is on this web series. Uh, her name was Allison Musco, and she was in charge of her care. She got her, you know, when she came in, and she was with her until mm-hmm. the day she left. Um, Gina had third and fourth degree burns. They were some of the worst that Allison had ever seen. Um, Allison said she grew very close to Gina's family. You know, she's in there. Gina didn't wake up for 11 weeks. So three months. Yeah. She's in there. Her family's in there, you know, telling stories and talking to her. Did talking it say about how life. she survived? No, I don't know if it's because she was near the entrance so they could get her out before other people. You know what I mean? Because, like, the Coconut Grove, the only way people survived was bodies. They were covered in bodies. Yeah. And those it, bodies burned around them. It didn't say. It didn't say why she Ugh. did. And, and she's not... Scarred. Disfigured. I mean, I'm Probably sure she waist. has scars, but she's not... You, If you look at her, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, oh, she was a right. burn victim. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if her face was right at the door, so her face didn't right. get... I'm not really sure. Um, so she woke up 11 weeks later. So Allison's been bonding with her family for three months. I think she knows about her. She mm-hmm. knows all about her. Gina wakes up. She asks for Fred. She thinks, oh, I, oh. I made it into Boston. You know, mm. maybe he's at some other he's hospital in Boston. Too, yeah. What hospital is he at? Where is he? She said, oh, and, you know, she had to say to her, well, he's not here. She said, well, what other hospitals are mm. people at? You know, and she said, no, he's not here. He died in the fire. Oh. Obviously devastated. But this is what these nurses do. They're with these people that's, all the yeah. time. They, they deliver this stuff. Yeah, they're, and that's what Allison said. You're with them the whole entire time, three months, or, you know, probably mm-hmm. longer. So they become family, and you give your care from the heart. You give it with love, and you're, you know, you're helping these people heal. Right. You're bonding with them. Yeah, you're bonded. Um, And Gina just asked at the end. She just wants everybody to remember about this incident because um, if you remember it, hopefully it will never happen again. Yeah, that's what you hope. Yeah. And then the other episode I'm going to talk about is just, it was episode number three. I think it was called Faith. And there's a firefighter, John Gregson. He said, the first thing he says is that he remembers that the dispatcher, you know, when he came over the radio calling for more help, calling for more trucks, calling for more firefighters, he said whatever he is seeing is bad. Is bad. He could, the sound of his voice, he knew whatever he was seeing. When you listen, when you watch the video, Mm -hmm. you can hear him say, there's multiple deaths here. Yeah. Like, we got to get these people out of here. There's a lot of dead people. Yeah. And And I I think it was just the way he said it, you know, you can hear it in their voices. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And he said, um, John said, being a firefighter is the greatest job in the world. It's just sometimes you wish you weren't working, which I just thought summed up. Yes. Sums up first responders, yes. really. Um, John's job was to stand at the front door of the club with his partner in their stretcher from the ambulance and wait for a viable victim to come out. And he was standing there waiting and waiting and waiting he said he was watching the firefighters fight the fire and try to get the victims out and he said they were so stuck in there they would have the firefighters have to take a rope and lasso 
the bodies to pull them out because they were so stuck in there they couldn't pull them you know just with their arms like what does that do to you this this poor man i mean i can't imagine the rest of them but this poor man the way he's the whole you never get over that you never get over that his heart's broke Mm. the whole time he's telling the story it's just it's heartbreaking and he you can see his heart's broken um so they would take them out and then there was a temporary morgue it was just a top set up in the parking lot but the cars were parked right up to the door yeah so they had to take the bodies and pull them over a hood of a car and then his stretcher was in between the cars so they would pull them over the hood across his stretcher and then over the hood of the next car onto the top so he's he's standing there waiting and these bodies are coming out of this scalding hot club yeah. into the freezing in cold February. night mm-hmm. in February in Rhode Island and he said you couldn't look over because the bodies were steaming and your mind would be hoping someone was alive and you'd be thinking oh they're breathing oh yeah. they're breathing I could save them right and you're just hoping to save somebody somebody it's so tragic it's only death coming out right. of that door and he said um but it's a mass casualty. So there's like protocols you have to go by. And he said, pulseless and breathless equals non-viable. So mm-hmm. when they pulled these people out, check for a pulse, check for a breath, no, they go to the morgue and you have to move on to the next person. Right. Like you can't Which linger. is what they didn't do at the Coconut Grove right. and it, wasted time. Because some people, these people aren't going to survive if they're and, and not that you're wasting time because it's a human life, but you want to save what you can. You want to save as many as possible. Right. So you can't spend an hour on one who's, just who's not, not going make to make it. Which is a really hard person to be. Yeah. It's to make that decision then to stand there knowing, no, it's just steam. It's just just to tell yourself, no, they're not breathing. Um, So he stood there and waited for his next viable patient, just kept looking at the door, waiting for a viable patient. And finally, Linda Cephaletto was pulled out. He said, a young guy stopped and said to John, it moved. And John looked at this patient and said, no, it didn't. And he said he'll never forget that because he had, it's the first time he ever referred to a human as it. And he felt awful. But he said the injuries were so bad and so severe. You had no idea. There's no hair. There's no No face. Nothing. Nothing. You could not tell what, if it was a male or female. So there was a little argument going on about whether or not this patient had moved. Um, And all of a sudden, Linda lifted her head and let out a noise. Like, I'm here. I am alive. I did move. She's fighting. Yep. So they grab her, get her on the stretcher, get her to the ambulance, which is blocked, blocked in because there's so many ambulances, fire trucks, cars, people. It was insane. They're blocked in. He starts cutting her clothes off to, you know, take a look at her injuries and get to her. And she covers herself. And he thinks, oh, my God, she's fully aware. Of like, he knew she knew something to let out a noise. Right, but... To cover yourself is another level. And he said, she's fully aware. Knows. And he said he couldn't get over. She she had no ears, no hair, n- eyes. Oh, um, Left God arm damn. was completely burned. The hand was off. Like, severe, especially to the head injuries. Right. And he said... And you're he, awake and alert. And he couldn't believe that the brain could withstand the, just the heat. Never mind the fumes and the right. chemicals and what you're breathing in. Just the heat alone that had to have been surrounding her head. That he couldn't believe that this woman was completely right. aware. Um, so they have they put patients in Trendelenburg. They put their head down, get blood flow up yeah. to the heart and the head um, to perfuse the brain. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting on the floor of the ambulance by her head because he said, I knew she couldn't see and she couldn't talk. But he knew she was aware. So he sat by her head so he would, she could sense that somebody was oh, there with her. her. Yep. 
he held her right hand. He it was injecting with his other hand, just giving her some um, pain meds and whatever mm-hmm. else she needed. And he said, then he started to pray, and he was praying that she wouldn't make it. And he said, knowing the miracles of modern medicine, and knowing that she they could keep her alive, maybe mm-hmm. they might she might be able to pull through this. And then looking at the extent of her injuries. He said she needed to be out of there 10 to 15 minutes sooner or we needed to be there five minutes later. He said it was oh just too God. too bad to live with. He just, and he had a very hard time dealing with her with her and him hoping someone wouldn't pull through because he had dedicated his whole career to helping people and here he was wishing this person wouldn't make it. But you also want what's best for that person. Of co- and that's, of course, that's and what he did. you know what they're going to go through. Right. He wasn't wishing her... Right, no, but you know what they're going to go bad. through. Yeah. He was just out of his heart. This is what you would... Right. You know. So he said his faith is wavered. He has a very hard time thinking of God in heaven after witnessing this... Did she pull The through? devastation. No, she died in the back of that ambulance. At least she had him there, though. Yeah, he held her hand. He gave her meds. She was... Oh, my God. Yeah. So just just touch upon, like, the PTSD that they... These oh, forget people, it. I don't know how they live through forget it. Forget it. And they said they had memorial services at the site, like, after, like, every week or something oh, yeah, for a yeah. while. And all the victims and the families and friends would be at the service, and the firefighters would be across the street because they didn't feel like... They don't feel like they're victims. Yeah. yeah. But they are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Then you go home, and, and you have family, yeah. and you're supposed to be normal with them, mm-hmm. and you're just not. No. You can't be. No. No. So that's... I mean, we've each had those cases where you're mm-hmm. like... You're doing, you know, like, I had one where the, the head had, like, exploded. Mm-hmm. And I'm holding it in while they're prepping it. And then I go home, and my kids are like, can I have breakfast? I want a bagel. And I'm like, this this isn't normal. No. And who are you going to talk to about that? Right. I'm going to say that to my kids. Right. Talk to my husband. He doesn't, he doesn't know. And even if you do, they can't, you can't No. They grasp. can't wrap it around. No, you can't grasp what that is. And, and maybe that's why nurses tend to be clicky because right. it's you only another nurse you can say that to that was with you. You can be mm-hmm. like, oh, my God. And you may crack a really inappropriate joke because it's the only way you know how to get it out right you have to get through it you know right wow yeah that's some heavy shit heavy stuff that's sorry heavy shit. <laughs> well i guess we should give you a little light-hearted story mm-hmm. um i had a really good story but i'm gonna do a whole different episode on it okay. so i'm gonna hold on that one so i guess i'm gonna tell you about because it's a it's a calming experience in a way i guess yeah um, it's a therapeutic it's a little therapeutic mm-hmm. So I had to do a case the other night, mm-hmm. and it was a back, and um, you know, I was setting up, and it's like 10.30, I work nights, so this means I'm going to be in the OR all night, and mm-hmm. I, I just didn't want to do this case. So I'm already in a mood, shocker, I was in a mood, I'm already so in a surprising. mood that I get to do this case. So um, I had one of our buddies with us, uh-huh. she's scrubbed, and I'm doing my paperwork, I'm waiting for the patient to do my thing, and this guy comes in, I'm like, huh, and he comes over to me, he's like... I'm John Beach, B-E-A-C-H, and I'm a third-year medical student, and I'm here to rock and roll. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm sorry, did you really just say to me you're going to be here to rock and roll? And I just looking at him, I'm like, really? Uh-huh. He's like, yep, do, um, do you need me to get a light, um, headlight, some loops? I said, do you have any intentions of operating? He's like, nope. I'm like, then I don't think you need those. No. Surgeon's got it. So... He's like hanging out in the room. He's trying to be real goddamn helpful. Mm, you know? Very helpful. So the nurse and assistant comes in. They start wheeling the patient in the room. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not ready for the patient yet. Mm-hmm. Put him out in the induction room. I got to check him in, blah, 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 blah. So that's what they do. They're like, well, they told us to bring him. I'm like, 
I gotta look for consent. She can't even come in the room. You gotta wait. So yeah. out in the hallway they go. So I go out. I talk to the patient. You know, check them in. Blah 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 blah. And the fellow comes in who had the most adorable French accent I've ever heard in my life. I re- it was it was a bit of a turn on. I'm not gonna lie. It was a bit of a turn on. So he comes in. He's like, "Where's me, Pedro?" And I'm like, <laughs> "On the hallway." <laughs> this beach is like she wouldn't let him in. Oh. So our buddy who scrubs like, you need to shut up and sit in the corner. <laughs> and he was like looking at her. And the fellow's like, yeah, no problem. I totally get it. So he goes, sits in the corner. Says, shut up and go sit in the corner. <laughs> goes, sits in the corner. We start the case. We're doing our thing. Now the case is over. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember this. You came in. Yeah. And how can I how forget, could you this? forget this? <laughs> Waiting for the patient to wake up. Mm-hmm. And he decides he's going to start doing yoga mm-hmm. in the room mm-hmm. so he stands there and he brings his hands over his head nice deep breath in and he bends over at the waist nice and breathes deep breath it back in. out in in front of everybody everybody i don't hide my emotions of all in my face mm-hmm. so i promptly burst out laughing and leave the room mm-hmm. You're in there leave me with your with mask it. on, but you're bright, bright red because you're laughing as hard as I am, but you're able to control. And I'm in the hallway, ah, cracking up, laughing, and he's just continuing like there's not no. a problem in the world. No. So I come back in, and at this point now, he must have exhausted himself from his yoga exercises. Oh, it was a lot. He sits on a step stool, which is maybe two inches off the floor. Yeah, they're very small. So he sits down, gets a blanket, puts his knees up to his face, puts the blanket over his head, falls asleep. Mm-hmm. Like... Fucking out like a light. Yep. Falls right to sleep. Mm-hmm. We wake the patient up. We put the drapes, get everything gone, wheel the patient out, clean up the room. Very quietly. And he's still asleep. Mm. I walk over to the phone. I quietly call the turnover team to turn over the room, <laughs> shut the lights off, and out we go. For all I know, he's still fucking sleeping in that room. He might be. That numb nuts. Yep. Like, are you kidding me? He was the I'm here person. to rock and roll. <laughs> Good fucking for you <laughs> so um thank you for listening thank i you. know this was a tough episode hopefully a little lighthearted at the end helped mm-hmm. um this is probably the heaviest episode we'll ever do i hope so i hope so too yeah um we do like some weird shit though i'm not gonna lie mm-hmm. so um like subscribe rate and review the podcast follow us on twitter instagram facebook at scissors and scrubs send us any of your stories thoughts whatever to scissors and scrubs at gmail.com and thank you to all of those first responders yes every day what you do mm-hmm. bye